Well, excellent. Uh, good morning. It is great to, to be here. And as Bobby said, children, we are so glad that you are with us this morning in our service. Uh, you have notes to be able to take as well, so, so join in us with that. Uh, you'll see in just a little bit. This is a time of our service that we call the, the preaching of the Word. We are, by nature, uh, a people of the book. We believe that the Word of God is the final and ultimate authority of our lives. And so in this time, we, we take a text of the Bible, and we sit under it, if you will, meaning that the Bible ultimately is what drives our lives. The Word of God, Christ is our King, and His Word that He's given to us is, is that which we anchor our lives to. So little ones, as you age, storms will come in life, difficult times will come, and yet the Word of God is our anchor that we found our lives on. And so as we gather together for the next 30 or uh, so minutes, we sit under what the Word of God teaches us, desiring to not only learn what the Word teaches, but to live it out in our lives. And so you'll see in just a little bit, we'll have little fill-in-the-blank opportunities that will come up on the screen. We encourage you, write those words down if you have a bulletin to fill those in. Uh, if you have gummy snacks, go ahead and offer those to me after the service. I would be glad to take them off of your hands. But it is glad, we are glad to be here to worship the King together. Uh, and so if you have little wiggles in you, don't worry. Same if you're an, an, uh, a senior adult and you have some wiggles as well, just let them ride. We're not judging you at all. No, it is good to be together in the house of the Lord. Isn't it good? It's good to sit under his word. And if you're just visiting with, with, with us, we're in the third of a five-week series entitled Nature and Nurture. And the idea at its heart is this. Every year, we'll take five weeks to, to reevaluate, to refocus ourselves, if you will, on who we are. That the word of God calls us to adopt a nature that is a people who are, for the glory of God, making disciples of Jesus Christ. That word disciples meaning learners or followers of. So we by nature are followers of Jesus Christ. We are followers of the Word. And as people who are followers of the Word, the Word calls us to make disciples. Which means in our life we, we gather around others and we point them to Christ. Our hope. And we encourage them to do like we are and follow Christ. Join us, join hands with us as together we follow after Christ. So we are disciples who are called to be making disciples for the glory of God. And as a church family, we want to nurture that. So the question is, how do we nurture that? Last week we looked at the Word. That we are a people bound by learning and living the Word of God. So that all of our groups that take place, whether it's a Sunday school class, a small group, whatever it is, all of our ministries... And all of our services will be bound by an abiding commitment and the authority in the Word of God. And we say that joyfully as a constant reminder that we're moving in the same direction from the youngest of ages all the way to the oldest of our classes. And that leads us to ask the question this morning, part number two on that, word and worship. As a people who are committed to the Word of God, learning and living the Word of God, what of our worship what should our worship look like? What should these distinctives be in our lives? And as you have your Bible, I'd like you to flip over to Isaiah chapter 6 as we get a snapshot in this absolutely incredible text that has shaped generations over the last several thousand years of what does worship look like and what should we aim for worship to look like in our lives, in our homes, but also ultimately corporately 
as a church family, living the Word of God in our everyday lives. So as you flip over to Isaiah chapter 6, I'll give you some background very quickly. Now, if you remember, this can be kind of confusing. Israel has divided into two kingdoms. We have a northern kingdom, which keeps the name Israel, and a southern kingdom called Judah. And Jerusalem is located there in the southern kingdom uh, of Judah. Isaiah is coming along, and he's warning. He's warning Judah. So prophets had kind of two jobs. Job number one, to warn the people to stop what they were doing and to turn. So stop what you're doing and turn your heart back to God. So there's this warning of how they're living. But there's also oftentimes a future warning of what will happen if you don't. Kind of like what a parent does with a child. If you don't stop doing that, this will happen. That's what the prophets were doing on a consistent basis. Warning of present behavior and the consequences that God is going to come down there. Right? It sounds very similar uh, to, our, to our lives. And the, the prophet uh, uh, Isaiah, as he's writing... God gives him a very clear warning. And it's important that you and I remember this before we read in our text. We can make a mistake of reading this black and white ink and forget that we're reading accounts of real people that would have had real boys and girls and real men and women gathered together who had just seen the northern kingdom dominated by the Assyrians and taken off into captivity. And now the southern kingdom is still here, but the Assyrians who are from the northwest are coming. And farm by farm and land by land, they're coming for Jerusalem. And the king that's ruling at the time is named Uzziah. And Uzziah is, began ruling at the age of 16. So I want to ask a question here. Do we have anybody that's, if you're 16 years old, would you just stand up for us? If you're 16... Anybody, any volunteer? There we go, a 16-year-old, excellent. So, so began ruling at, at 16, and he rules for 52 years until age 68. So do we have anybody at 68 wants to stand up? <laughs> I knew that one would be a little harder. Honestly, I'm a little ashamed that some of our senior adults didn't stand up when I asked if anybody's 16, but that's okay. So anybody ballpark? 60, you would never say you're 68, but ballpark 68. There we go. All right, there we go. This is beautiful. Hey, let's hear it for them. That bold confession right there. That's good. There you go. Excellent. Uh, and so you can imagine the age span by which Uzziah is ruling. 52 years he's been their leader. And, and according, you can write it down. We're not going to read it, but 2 Chronicles 26 gives us the account of the type of leader that Uzziah was for Judah. He was an incredible king. As a matter of fact, military-wise, he was brilliant. The military grows. The, the country is exploding. The nation is exploding. He's an incredible leader. Now, unfortunately, as the nation grows, which happens from time to time, pride begins to come into his heart, and, and he, he gets arrogant, and he walks right into the temple, into the holy place, and, and, and God judges him for that, and his downfall kind of begins. But overall, he was an incredible leader for 52 years. They knew the king that sat on the throne. And right at the time that he breathes his final breath, the Assyrians are knocking on the door. Siri is trying to preach my sermon this morning. <laughs> Never had that happen. Door doesn't even sound like Siri. I don't know why that just happened. It startled me. But you can imagine the emotions that we would be having 
of uncertainty, of anxiety, of fear? What's going to happen? Capture those emotions as we look at the first of the four characteristics that the worship that we desire as a church family is to model itself after from this text. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to look in verse 1 and and notice that this worship, it's to concentrate on the nature of God. We desire to be worshipers who concentrate on the nature of God. And we see two of these attributes of God's nature, the first of which is going to be in verse 1, his divine sovereignty over all creation. Look at verse 1. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe, it filled the temple. How easy it is to forget that when the chaos and dangers of life take place, that there is still a king on the throne. Isn't that true? Knowing that culture, knowing who Uzziah was, what a godly and good leader comparatively he was for the, for the nation, knowing the danger that was coming in from the west and northwest area that was the Assyrian army, the dangerous position they found themselves in. What does Isaiah begin by saying? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the king on the throne. How many of us in seasons of our life need to be reminded of that this morning? I rejoice that that Stephen, who we've called to be our our new worship pastor, like Jesse, believes that, that we are called to fix our eyes, not on ourselves, but upon Christ. The crucified and resurrected Christ, he is our hope. And no matter what season of your life you find, so when when sickness happens that you do not see coming, there is still a king seated on the throne. When life begins to turn upside down, there is still a king seated on the throne. The sovereignty of God means that he rules even in the chaos of life, that not a single pin drops to the ground without our good Lord permitting it to do so. There are no rogue molecules in the universe. Our king rules even in a fallen world. See, the sovereignty of God as we consider worship is not something that's a straitjacket that binds us, but it's actually a warm blanket in a cold and frightening world over the little child that says it's okay. I'm still here. So as we recall the sovereignty of God in our worship, that God is still ruling even when it seems like the world is is in a state of constant chaos and decay. When your life begins to become in peril, remember that our God is sovereign and good. Our eyes are fixed upon him. We notice the sovereignty of God, but also in this text we'll notice the distinct holiness from all of creation that is indeed our God. Look at verses 2 through 4. His distinct holiness from all of creation, his divine sovereignty, and now his distinct holiness from all of creation. Verse 2 through 4. Look at this scene. This is pretty amazing. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. With two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Now, when we think of 
the larger biblical narrative, the larger biblical story, when angels interact with humans, they're typically terrified. That seems to be a common denominator. Uh, so I, I don't know if you're into precious moments. If you are, that's fine. No judgment here. But those precious moment dolls are typically not very accurate when you think about angels as they appear. Those aren't terrifying anybody. Um, all right. But these angels as they appear, they're, they're, they're frightening at first. Because angels ultimately, it's not just that they, they, they are fierce, but by nature they are holy. They're without sin. They've not fallen. Those angels that fell, those are called demons. But a third of the angels that, that decide to follow after Lucifer and fell, those are demons. Set number of them. But the angels that do not fall, here is the seraphim, the species of angel, if you will, that's gathered here right beside the throne. And he has six wings. And, and with one pair of wings, he's covering his face. And do you remember when Moses made a request to God? What did he say? Let me see your face. What does God say? No. You can't. You won't survive. You won't survive. This angel who is without sin, who is holy in that sense, God is so much holier that the angel cannot even look upon the holiness of our God. So with, with two wings, he covers his face, and with two wings, and some translations say midsection, but the idea is that his feet, his body, is also covered with these other two wings. The picture shows us as well. Have you ever been to a bonfire and you tried to roast a hot dog? We went to a massive bonfire. We had a friend. He, he liked to do these bonfires. In reality, I think there were like uh, mild explosions that he would establish and just wanted an excuse to be able to do it for his wife. Uh, so we showed up with these wiener roaster sticks that were what, like this long and the little tiny ones you get at Walmart. And this fire is like 15, 20 feet tall. It's pretty impressive. And we were hoping to, to roast hot dogs and marshmallows. And what we saw is we couldn't get within like 25 feet of the fire, but it was so hot. You know, you, there's, that, there's that threshold. You know what I'm talking about? There's that threshold you can get close but when you step right too close, you're thinking, uh-oh, I need new eyebrows. You know, you're just too close. Your body just physically, the elements will not hold up. You're just different. That is the picture of the holiness of God, that he is so holy that we will not hold up. Not only will we not hold up, but the angels, the seraphim, these worshiping servant angels will not hold up in the direct presence of our holy God. That's the God that we want to fix our eyes on in worship. That's our king. He's the one. And, and, and then he has, they, have, they have two wings that are doing what? They're just flying. And, and they use this for, for acts of service. We see that in the text. We're going to see them go and pick up the coal. And also, maybe it's just because it's pretty cool. Maybe God just wanted to make something that was pretty cool to have wings. You know you dreamed about having wings at some point. Well, these seraphim are living the dream. They have wings. They're serving God. And that's pretty cool. And what are they singing? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. They're saying it three times. Holy, holy, holy. This repeated idea in Hebrew is that it's like bolding and an exclamation point and underlining it, reemphasizing it. Holy, holy, holy. It's kind of like maybe a parent would say to their child, I'm going to count to three. One, two, three. And it's serious. The angels are singing the thrice holiness of God. 
Who is this God? I want you to, I'm going to give you a moment. I want you to flip over in your Bibles to John chapter 12. Who is this one who's the train of his robe? It fills the whole temple area. Everything is, is completely filled. And the house was filled with smoke, which is kind of like how they would do their temple services as well. As a fragrant offering, offering representing the, the presence of God. John chapter 12, verse 41 through 43. As a reminder here, Jesus has just entered into uh, Jerusalem. The triumphal entry has taken place. He's prophesied about the Son of Man being lifted up, prophesying his death and resurrection. And he's speaking here, and, and he gets this correction that takes place, this statement that, that takes place as he's interacting with the Pharisees. John gives us a little bit of commentary, but it's important to, to listen. So please catch this point. So, so, so catch this point. The one we just read about back in Isaiah chapter 6, the one who's so holy that the angels can't look at him, look who John says that is. John chapter 12, verse 41. We're going to read it all the way through 43, but look what it says. It says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Who's the him? Look at verse 42. Nevertheless, many of the authorities believed in him. In who? In Jesus but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. The one that we're seeing in Isaiah chapter 6, listen, is pre-in-the-flesh Jesus. They're looking, Isaiah sees Jesus. God is by nature a trinity, triunity, Father, Son, and Spirit. One God eternally existing in three persons. The Father sends the Son. We don't speak of Father and Son in the same way of a, a Father making a Son. The Son is not created. But the Son in obedience took on the nature of a man. He is the God-man, 100% God, 100% man. He doesn't cease to be God. But He takes on the full nature of man. He's born of a virgin. He's a baby who needs to eat. He grows and he develops and he lives a full adult life. And he maintains all the demands of the Old Testament laws. He perfectly obeys the Word of God. He is the Word of God. And he lays his life down on the cross. That's the one that the angels cannot even look at. That's Jesus Christ who we crucified. It's Jesus Christ who raises from the dead. And it's Jesus Christ who, when Stephen began our worship service and read Revelation chapter 4, that's our Lord that they're singing to. It's truly what we'll be doing forever is worshiping and fixing our eyes on God. So the first mark that marks our worship as a church family is we will fix our eyes upon our Creator who is good. Let's look secondly. By nature, when we fix our eyes on God, it leads us, in verse 5, to confess our hopelessness. We desire worship that also confesses the hopelessness of man. When I say that first and foremost in verse 5, the very beginning, it says, And I said, Isaiah writing, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. There's this confession that I, as a rebellious sinner, deserve condemning judgment of God. Every one of us could say that if we're being completely honest. 
And every person outside of this room would say the same thing, that you and I are condemned on our own. We are in trouble, regardless of where you grew up. We are in trouble. And Isaiah knows that right away. And he cries out, Woe is me, for I am unclean. I can't be here. I shouldn't be here. He shouts, Woe is me. Have you ever heard someone say, maybe they, they denied God, they say, I don't, I don't believe in God, I don't believe in Jesus, I don't believe this is true. But maybe you've heard someone say something like, you know what, if he does exist, when I die, I'm going to ask him why he did this. Or I'm going to ask him why he didn't do this. This text shows that that is completely inaccurate of what will happen. Not a single person will debate with God when they die. But like Isaiah, the pure holiness of God will cause them to realize, I am woefully condemned. I am hopeless. Their mouth will be shut and their heart will cease to beat for their own defense. If you and I lived at the time and we were asked the question, Who's the most holy, good, best person you knew? Who would we say probably? Isaiah. Isaiah's the man. What does the best example we can give? What does he say before a holy God? Three words. Woe is me. If that's what Isaiah says, what will you and I say? Do you know what I'm saying? What will I say? If Isaiah says, woe is me, what will we say? We will be condemned. We are hopeless. So we don't gather here to lift each other up on our own strength and say you're good enough, you're smart enough, and doggone it, people like you. It's not what church is. We are hopeless on our own. And not only are we hopeless, but we're made abundantly clear right away that you and I are with a people who are also hopeless. Not only can we not help ourselves, but by, by nature we cannot help each other. Our community on our own is hopeless. So look what it says as he continues on in verse 5. He says, And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So our brokenness, it demands, the second point there, our brokenness demands the condemning judgment of God. That's what our brokenness demands. It's not just that we're muddy and, and, and dirty and broken on our own, but, but we can't help each other get clean. Uh, there's a picture up here. This is from, uh, looks pretty terrifying actually, looking at it from this angle, this big of a picture. But this is from uh, our, our student ministry camp. Bobby does a wonderful job. If you have a, a teenager, middle school to high school age, I encourage you. As they, I had a chance to meet with him this week. He is praying through with his staff what that ministry is going to look like in the fall. I encourage you to be preparing your teenager for being a part of this ministry. Uh, I don't think this is going to happen on a regular basis, but I, I wanted this picture for a reason. They were at youth camp. And they were in this big, massive mud game. And the picture I think that we can get would be like if one of the students, uh, say Courtney, who was one of the leaders there, one of the students approached Courtney, who's right in the middle of the mud pit, and said, hey, I need you to clean me off. There's a problem, isn't there? Because Courtney would be covered in mud as well. They're covered in mud, and they're standing in mud. They're incapable of cleaning each other up. You and I, church... 
are incapable of cleaning each other up. I want to be clear here about what I mean by that. You and I are called to gather together as the body of Christ, Hebrews 10, to not forsake the gathering together, but I can't forgive you of your sins, and you can't forgive me of my sins. The Scriptures call us as the church to bear one another's burdens, so we encourage each other, but we can't bear each other's sins. There's only one who can do that. And so what do we do with one arm? We put our arm around each other and encourage each other, but with the other arm, we point each other to Christ, the only one who's capable of remedying our sin problem. And that's what he realizes. Not only is he sinful and broken, but he's with a people who are also sinful and broken. So we notice, first, we focus our worship on the holiness of God that, that, that brings us to an immediate reality that we are not holy and it leads us to our third element of worship. We desire worship that celebrates the personal atoning, which means make right, sacrifice of God for me and for us. Two elements in this we see in verse 6 and 7. The first is that the Lord graciously, it's a gracious, think unearned favor, the Lord graciously came for us. Look at verse 6. So he realizes his woe is me and the people being in woe. And, and he says in verse 6, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hands a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. Grace is unearned favor. The Lord is the one who initiates. Grace is unearned favor. Okay, it would be like if you took just randomly, you're sitting there, there's no anything that you did, anything special on your own, and grace is just coming and just unearned, they just go and, and unearned favor. There's nothing that we did to receive it or to earn it or demand it. It's completely unearned. That is the nature of our salvation, that it is completely unearned favor that God lavishes upon us, that there's nothing. He didn't look through time and space and say, you know what, that one, ooh, they're good. But while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He is the initiator. Now we are to receive that gift and we're to, to long for Christ and to, to place our trust and hope in Christ. But grace is unearned favor that God lavishes upon us. And so we celebrate that. We sing to Christ and we celebrate the grace that you and I have been recipients of. And what do we do with other people? We point other people likewise to grace that is found in Christ. So there's grace and on the other side of that there's mercy. There's mercy. The Lord mercifully Think of mercy as withheld judgment. These are just very simple definitions. The Lord mercifully paid our debt and set us free. Look at verse 7. Look what happens. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. And when the president pardons somebody, we'll say that they clearly did commit a crime in this example, the president pardons them the president in that way is taking the judgment that should be rightly placed on them and is taking it away. Mercy. And the opposite example would be like if, if, uh, if, if I owed him $20 and he said, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. You see, the problem is there's still a debt that has to be paid. He still absorbs that debt in himself. Mercy, withheld judgment. How are you doing with your guilt? How are you doing with your guilt? 
Do you struggle with guilt? Do you struggle with the feeling of trying to earn your salvation sometimes? You have ideas that say, if I, if I do this, God, maybe he will love me more. On the Day of Atonement, in the Old Testament, once a year, the, the high priest, he would go and he would, he would cleanse himself, he'd wash himself, and then he would put on these special clothes. Remember, the, the priests are these go-betweens between the people and the holy God. And the high priest, after he would put on the clothing, he would sacrifice a bull for his sin and the sin of his family. And after he would do so, he would take two goats, two goats, and he'd cast lots for it. He'd flip a coin for it, if you will. And the goat that lost in that way, if you, in this example, in this situation, what they would do, would take the goat and they would sacrifice the goat. And they would take the blood of the goat that was sacrificed and they would go into the Holy of Holies and he would sprinkle the blood right there. And then the second goat that was not slaughtered, this goat, this goat we get the word scapegoat for it, that saying. He would take that goat, he would place his hands on it, and he would confess the sins of the nation upon this goat. And the goat then would be sent into the wilderness, demonstrating that their guilt is gone. But in the book of Hebrews, a book that we'll spend time in in the month of December, the author is very clear that we have a high priest who is better. We have a sacrifice that is made once and for all and able to forgive us and to cleanse our guilt, to wash our conscience. We have one who is risen and who sits at the right hand of the Father making intercession for his people. He is Jesus. He is our King. Forgiveness is found in Christ alone. He is our hope. Do you know this King that we're going to memorialize and remember and recall here shortly in the Lord's Supper? We celebrate worship that celebrates the personal uh, atoning, make right sacrifice of God for me and for us as the body of Christ. But third, fourthly, we, we notice as well that this is worship that compels us to serve our Lord. The only right response that we can make is a life of service to our God. Not to pay him back, but because we've been purchased and he spends us. In service. Look at verse 8. What kind of service is this? This is service that willingly surrenders all that we are. Verse 8 reads, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, and here's a question, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. A message requires a messenger. A message requires a messenger. God atones for Isaiah's sin, if you will, in this situation with the coal. And he asks a question, who now will go for me? Who will go for me? And what did he say? Here I am. Send me. Do you see what changed? you see what changed in our text so far this morning? Notice this. What were the last words that Isaiah said? Woe is me. And now he says, his next words, here I am, send me. Woe is me, here I am, send me. What changed? The Lord took care of his sinfulness. And the only reasonable response that a person has, regardless of their age, 
that knows that their sin has been remedied is to become a servant. His question that he asks, he doesn't, he doesn't ask, well, God, what do you want me to do exactly? Can you show me the job description that you're asking for me to do? He doesn't do that, does he? He says, blank check, here I am, send me. Here I am, send me. That's the natural response. And this is what we're going to be looking at next week, by the way. We're going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 4 next week, 14 through 21. We're going to unpack this model of, of servants and how we grow as servants and, and, and how Christ models this, this, this element and Paul models this element of teaching and modeling and deploying and assessing as we grow as servants in our life together. So, so servants that willingly surrender all that we are. And secondly, it's service in which success is measured by faithfulness to the word. It is service in which success is measured by faithfulness to the word. 9 through 13, look at this. And God says this, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy, and blind their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and, and turn and be healed. And then I said, How long, O Lord? How long is this job going to last? For me. And God said, Until the cities lie waste without inhabitant, and the houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And, and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. We don't have time to look at it, but you can write down in your notes, if you're taking notes, Matthew 13, 13 through 15. And Romans chapter 11, verse 8. So two texts where this reference is going to be alluded to in the New Testament. What does this act of service look like? Is Isaiah going to become a superhero? Nope. His job is going to be to tell a people that don't want to hear it and they aren't going to receive it. And how long is he going to do this job? God says you're going to do it until our cities lay in, my cities lay in, in ruin and my people are taken away. That's not a great gig, is it? But it is the gig of a servant. In our men's study, Shameless plug, Thursday morning, 6.30, Family Life Center. Men, join us. There's still time to join. One of the men at my table, a very wise man, he made a statement I've been thinking about all this week since he said it. He said, you know what? I've discovered that no matter the group, there's always room for a servant. There's always room for another servant. What a wise statement. The church, there's always room for another servant. As you look to Christ, as you look honestly at your life, do you see, woe is me? If you do, trust in Christ, whose body was broken, whose blood was spilled, so that you could be forgiven. And if you've trusted Christ, if you've been forgiven, your only reasonable response, here I am, God. 
send me. Our next steps is this summary of worship that you'll see on the front of our bulletin that will be a constant reminder and guidance for us as we unpack even further the defining mission and vision statement you'll already see sewn there on the front of your bulletin. But this is it. That we at Grace Bible Church, we are committed to seeing every Christian at Grace gathered together in a multi-generational corporate worship service. Together as a united offering of praise to God through song, preaching, giving, encouraging, and obedience to God, we focus our minds and hearts upon the crucified and resurrected Christ, our hope of glory. He is the one we have our identity in. He is the one we have our hope in. No person here is the hero, but we know the hero. And our hero has left testimonies all around us for his goodness and his glory. What a privilege it is today to be able to take and observe the Lord's Supper together. Let's pray to the King before we be able to have the opportunity to do so. Now, Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's true. We thank you for using Isaiah in ways that we cannot understand, but Lord, we know as he continues to write that there is one who would come who would be the suffering servant. We know that there was one who you would write beforehand hundreds and hundreds of years that there would be no blame found in his mouth, and yet like a sheep led to the slaughter, his blood would be spilled. It is him that we identify with. It is him that we entrust ourselves to. I pray, Lord, that your spirit would minister to us appropriately. I pray, Lord, if there are those that do not know you as king, that you do a work upon their lives and bring them to pledge their allegiance to you, to entrust themselves to you. Lord, we want to be a people who are your worshipers, who worship you in spirit and truth, who are unashamed to be your people in this life. We thank you for your word, and we pray, God, your spirit would minister in this time. In Jesus' name, all God's people said together, Amen.